Deadline White House is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Plus, auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Quote now at Progressive.com to see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who save with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. Hi there, everyone. It's 4 o'clock in the East on what could be the first day of the rest of the Trump story. Donald Trump breaking the news himself that he has received a target letter from special counsel Jack Smith, likely indicating his imminent indictment in the January 6th criminal probe. But that's not all. We come on the air with both of today's top stories, spokes of the same wheel of Trump's alleged criminality. A hearing just wrapped up in a courthouse in South Florida where lawyers for the government squared off with lawyers for the ex-president in the classified documents case. We will have full coverage of those proceedings later in the broadcast, but we begin with news that the ex-president has been informed that he is now a target in special counsel Jack Smith's January 6th probe and is therefore very likely to be indicted. Donald Trump took to Truth Social this morning, saying he received the notice on Sunday and was given, quote, four days to report to the grand jury. New York Times reports this, quote, the former president is expected to decline the invitation to appear before the grand jury. It is unclear what the charges against the ex-president will be, but we do know prosecutors have brought a veritable parade of witnesses, including Mike Pence, Mark Meadows, and Jared Kushner, to testify before the grand jury investigating January 6th in recent months. New York Times reports this as well. Prosecutors have been asking witnesses about the former president's state of mind, as well as efforts to fundraise off his false claims of widespread voter fraud and whether he knew he lost. They have also been scrutinizing efforts to put together slates of so-called fake electors to cast ballots in support of Trump when the electoral college tallies were certified. So much of what we as a public know about the Trump-directed coup plot is thanks to the work of the January 6th Select Committee. The committee laid out clear evidence of a multi-pronged and complex plan to overturn the 2020 election, culminating, of course, in the attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. None of it was possible without the man that Vice Chair Liz Cheney said, quote, summon the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the flame of this attack. As you may recall, that panel referred the ex-president Donald Trump to the Justice Department on four criminal charges. Watch. The first criminal statute we invoke for referral, therefore, is Title 18, Section 1512C, which makes it unlawful for anyone to corruptly obstruct, influence, or impede any official proceeding of the United States government. We believe that there is more than sufficient evidence to refer former President Donald J. Trump John Eastman and others for violating Title 18, Section 371. This statute makes it a crime to conspire to defraud the United States. Third, we make a referral based on Title 18, Section 1001, which makes it unlawful to knowingly and willfully make materially false statements to the federal government. The evidence clearly suggests that President Trump conspired with others to submit slates 
of fake electors to Congress and the National Archives. The fourth and final statute we invoke for referral is Title 18, Section 2383. The statute applies to anyone who incites, assists, or engages in insurrection against the United States of America and anyone who gives aid or comfort to an insurrection. Now, as we sit here today, we don't know this for sure, but history may very well reveal that it was that moment that brought us to where we are today. The looming indictment of Donald Trump in the federal criminal investigation into the plot to overturn the 2020 election is where we begin today with some of our most favorite reporters and friends. Former lead investigator for the January 6th Select Committee, Tim Hafey, is back with us. Also joining us, former Deputy Assistant Attorney General and former U.S. Attorney Harry Lippman. New York Times Washington correspondent Glenn Thrush is back with us. And former Assistant Director for Counterintelligence at the FBI, MSNBC National Security Analyst Frank Figluzzi is here. Tim Hafey, um, when you listen to the criminal referrals that Congressman Raskin listed off there, that, that sort of was the climactic final public hearing of the committee's work, and you look at the breadcrumbs that have been left by Jack Smith, you look at the fact that Pence and Meadows have been in before the grand jury investigating January 6th. Does any one of the crimes referred leap out for you? Well, the order that Congressman Raskin used, Nicole, is exactly the order that I think we'll see in the indictment. The lead charge here in my view, is, is 1512C, the evidence that the president and his co-conspirators specifically intended to obstruct, impede, or interfere with an official proceeding, the joint session at which President Biden's election was certified, is the lead count. Uh, I think the others are important. I think the least likely is the aid and comfort to an insurrection. That is a statute that has not been used by federal prosecutors. It has not been brought against any of the Jan 6 rioters. Um, I think it's unclear what aid and comfort means, what's the intent level. Um, so I think that of the four is the one sort of least, the most obscure or the least likely. But 1512, from our investigation, we, we headlined with that statute. I, I think that has likely been the sort of operating assumption, the approach that the special counsel has taken, that's the lead count. Unless they have additional evidence, that's how I would expect uh, an indictment to read. And Congressman Raskin named Eastman. Um, is that a, a conspiracy that you would imagine Jack Smith would charge, a conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding? Yes, I, I think you will see a, uh, an indictment that will charge the former president as the leader of a group a conspiracy is, is an agreement. It's a group of people that agree uh, to commit some additional crime here, the obstruction of the proceedings. So you could see four, five, six people. Um, unclear how far he will stretch it. Will it go all the way out to the Republican National Committee operatives that were uh, suggesting the submission of the fake elector schemes? Or will it be a sort of a control group, a more tightly held inner circle? Eastman, Giuliani, Jeff Clark, Mark Meadows, um, although it sounds like he may have testified and may be cooperating, all of the sort of inner circle who were helping the president essentially execute that multi-part plan that the select committee laid out could possibly have exposure as conspirators. Tim, this is down in the weeds, but I think that's where viewers of this program are, are able to go and want to go on a day like this. Um, 
if Meadows has been before the grand jury and Rudy has voluntarily come in, are we to assume that people that went before the grand jury somehow cooperated or gave Jack Smith something? Or, I mean, could it be that the only people who are targets are the ones that did not cooperate? No. I mean, it, it's really hard to game out from the outside why someone went in the grand jury. Someone could go into the grand jury and assert privileges. Someone could go into the grand jury and continue to set forth the baseless theories of election fraud or the power of the vice president that they said all along. That would not be uh, in, in any way exculpatory. It would be inculpatory. Um, I'm not sure the circumstances that led to Meadows or Giuliani going into the grand jury. It is either a cooperation agreement where they are telling the truth to the grand jury in exchange for the hope of leniency, or they are potentially doubling down on what they had said, what Giuliani in particular said publicly over the course of the lead up to January 6th and on January 6th that the election was in fact stolen. So I don't know that you can read from the, just the fact that they went in what their status is, unless you know what they said once they were before that group. I will say, finally, that it is DOJ policy not to bring targets in front of the grand jury, right? That, that is an invitation for a sort of a Fifth Amendment problem. In our system, people don't have to incriminate themselves. You don't have to go into grand jury and take an oath and, and say that you incited an, uh, an insurrection or did anything criminal. You can refrain to answer that question by asserting a Fifth Amendment privilege, and the department does not affirmatively put people who they think have a Fifth Amendment privilege into the grand jury. That's the standard policy. So the fact that they went in suggests that they've somehow worked it out so that they have waived that privilege and are going in, or they don't think that they themselves have a privilege and therefore don't think there's any criminality. Tim, what does it mean in terms of where Jack Smith is and what he's ready to do that Trump received a target letter on Sunday? What should we all be prepared for? Yet another sign that he's close to the end. Target letter is something that typically comes sort of as a last step, right? It's basically the special counsel saying, we've developed evidence that you have violated federal criminal law. We're going to give you a chance to present any evidence that might bear upon our decision as to whether to charge you with those crimes. That is something that they do once they have made a conclusion or a determination, albeit a preliminary one, that uh, that there's exposure. Um, so I think we're close to the end. I think the fact that these witnesses that you mentioned have gone in suggests that as well. I think we've been talking on this show, Nicole, the last several times I've been here that it looks like this is winding down and the target letter mm-hmm. just reinforces that. I think we're likely now within a matter of days or, or weeks before a decision. And if that decision is an indictment for an indictment to be issued. So Glenn Thrush, it's an interesting moment for the department and the ex-president, I suppose, um, in that all of the things that people worried about have not happened, right? That if we charge an ex-president, um, we've never done that before, everything will fall apart. There was sort of a, a ho-hum, there's a lot of anxiety ahead of his arraignment in Miami, but the sun came up in the morning, it went down in the evening, and everybody went about their lives, except the ex-president, who has now said to his supporters, I am your retribution, you standing by my side, we will eradicate the deep state. The smears against Jack Smith are... Um, almost next levels, things that I'm not going to amplify even even to my very, very informed audience. Um, what do you think that means that 
Donald Trump knows is, is coming his way. Glenn, I think you're on, oh, there. Can you hear us? You were muted. Yes. Can you hear me all right? We got you. Yeah. Okay. Start over. I don't want to miss it. I, 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 um, to, to some extent, I think that you're absolutely right. I think the department started off on this road really slowly, as you've pointed out on, on any number of occasions. And the thing that we can really discern from Smith is that he's true to his word. In November, when he was appointed uh, by Garland to take over these two investigations, he promised to move expeditiously. And, and you know, that had to do with sort of getting this under the wire before we got into the the 2024 presidential campaign. Uh, now we have, over the course of really four to six weeks, I think, we have two potential. We have one indictment that's already in the books and one that appears inevitable. Um, so he has moved very quickly. I think the outer edge of his decision process here is likely to be early August, because that is when Fannie Willis down in Fulton County, who's investigating in Georgia, who's in investigating a lot of the similar a lot of the same events is expected to move ahead with her indictment and what what former federal prosecutors uh tell me and and i've heard folks on your your show say um is that moving simultaneously or after Fonnie willis would be really dangerous for smith because you don't want to have witnesses out there uh, whose testimony varies even slightly from the testimony that they're giving him that could create problems for him and opportunities for the defense. So if we're looking at a period of time and the time pressures that are on Smith, it's no longer just the political uh, calendar, but the the air traffic control above Donald Trump legally is getting very crowded. So Smith, I think, to some extent, is being impelled uh, by a calendar imposed upon him by the officials down in Georgia. Harry Lippman, um, I traded uh, calls and, and, and some messages earlier in the day with three former federal prosecutors, and I asked about Jack Smith and, and some of the questions I just put to Glenn Thrush. Um, there's something in my mind that wonders if, you know, coming from war crimes to the domestic political landscape, maybe Jack Smith was just the perfect person to be totally unfazed by what he had to sort of immerse himself in. What do you make of the, the, the speed and the change in speed and pace from when, from before there was a special counsel, from before these two invested, this, at least the January 6th probe was in Jack Smith's hands to after? You're really right about that. He, first, he has been in the fire before, and to all accounts, he's totally been able to walk forward and be completely unfazed by the political swirl around him. He knows how to handle it. But second, yes, he got out of the box pretty quickly, and we were struck with Mar-a-Lago. He's now in overdrive. I don't, you know, I don't think there's a faster uh, gear. And let's, we went through this in Mar-a-Lago, but the technical definition of the target letter is so close, almost decided. He's decided it. And you can bet it has already gone through the leadership of the department. Now, in terms of speed, the big question will be, and Glenn's comments avert to it, he can, he can do a, a small, 
medium and large basic case. And, and the pivotal question will be, will he actually go after Trump for the January 6th conduct itself? It's true that it would be very fraught um, legally. On the other hand, the department has already gone that way with the marauders themselves and gone that way with charging the president. But in any event, I think we can see by all expectations something to do with the false electors and probably something to do with the uh, fundraising itself. And a final point is, even though Giuliani and Eastman's attorneys announced they don't have a target letter yet, it doesn't mean that they won't figure in as unindicted co-conspirators in the indictment, nor does it mean that Smith doesn't have a real possibility of superseding. But he's coming out of the box with the most important and probably the quickest because the court he's bringing it in and the court of appeals over it is really used to moving with dispatch and has signaled they're fed up with Trump's kind of delay uh, tactics. Harry, say a little bit more about that, because it, someone pointed out to me today that it is possible that if Trump is charged and, and if it goes to trial, that that trial could very well happen ahead of the documents trial. Yeah, I, look, we, we've had the D.C. judges there already have had a lot of experience in different procedural kind of uh, motions where they've given it pretty close to increasingly back of the hand treatment. Then things have gone up to the Court of Appeals that has disposed of things within a day. Compare now in Mar-a-Lago, where the hearing just ended and we're still not exactly sure where uh, Cannon is. Compare also, I think it's important, I think he was uh, uh, taken by uh, the imminence of the Fulton County charges. It's interesting. He has not been in touch by all accounts with the state prosecutors. So he's going on the same timeline we have. And I think it's really important to come out of the box quickly. And he'll have judges, almost all of them on that uh, D.C. bench that are now used to moving quickly, know the different complicated issues and first and foremost are sensitized and have shown it to the overall timeline we're all looking at with the November 2024 election. Frank Viglizzi, I want your thoughts on today's news. And then I'm going to use all of you because you're some of the most knowledgeable people on the planet to delve into um, what might end up in Jack Smith's indictment itself. But but first, Frank, your, your reaction to today's news. Yeah, I, I like to remind people that on any given day in any given year, federal criminal prosecutions result in at least 90 percent of defendants pleading guilty. Now, I don't mean for anyone to infer that I think Donald Trump's going to plead guilty, but rather I say that to emphasize the strength of a federal criminal prosecution, the seriousness of the charges that get brought, and the strength of the evidence when you have agencies like FBI and others pulling out all of their tools in their toolkit from informant development, cooperating witnesses, surveillance coverage, wiretaps, paper analysis, you name it, the federal government brings it to the table, which is why cases are so strong. What do I mean by this? I mean that Jack Smith would not be bringing this case, and, and it looks like it's imminent, unless he had it nailed down solid with evidence. The charges will not be light or fringe-like, and the evidence will be overwhelming because that's what we see generally speaking, in all federal cases. The federal government would rather ditch a case than lose a case. So this is the strength of what we're about 
to see happen. Also, you led with this issue of the likely springboard that happened from the January 6th work, excellent, the committee, to lead to where Jack Smith is today. I'm both disturbed by that and encouraged by it. Disturbed because it took way too long for the FBI and the DOJ, and we learn more about this delay every day, for them to get their act together, and that's bad. But the, the Congress, this commission, this committee, stepped into the gap and made it happen in an unprecedented way for a congressional investigation. And that's encouraging that the three branches of government can actually step in, not only check each other, but actually supplant or assist or augment each other when one of them is failing to rise to the occasion. Um, I'm going to put to Mayfi on the spot in a second, but let me start with you on this, Fig. Do you think that absent the congressional probe, absent the evidence that the congressional committee developed with the same kind of and the similarly trained federal prosecutors who populate DOJ taking tape depositions of the likes of Cassidy Hutchinson and Mr. Jacob and Mr. Short and Mr. Stepien and the, the I mean, everyone, Clarence Thomas's wife, I mean, the meticulousness, the depth, the volume of the interviews that were gathered, the presentation of evidence, it seemed to prove two really important things. One, if DOJ brought a criminal case, it would not be novel. That was a big hang up about 18 months ago. And two, if DOJ worried that the public couldn't process a story about a sitting president trying to cling to power using anti-democratic and illegal methods, the public very much is capable of understanding that story. In fact, it broke decades of midterm political history in that it, it averted a red wave. I mean, it seems that two of the big hangups were wiped out by the work of the Congressional Committee, as well as all the evidence developed by it. Yeah, we've talked before on this program about how generally throughout my career, I've kept at arm's length and even held in disdain the notion that a serious, comprehensive investigation could be conducted by a congressional committee. I have changed my mind on that. Not only that, but yes, I do think I do think that we would not even have seen a special counsel appointed if the work of the committee hadn't seen the light of day and essentially compelled DOJ to get their act together on this. And look, the more we learn from Washington Post reporting and, and other major outlets about the delays and debates in the FBI and the DOJ and the degree to which headquarters at FBI may not have even been aware of debates between Washington field office and DOJ headquarters, even over the Mar-a-Lago uh, search warrant, which was a no-brainer, by, by the way, once you've got multiple refusals to cooperate, subpoenas blowing off, lies occurring, it's a no-brainer to get the search warrant, yet they couldn't even get that quickly agreed to. So, yeah, I, I think I'm unclear that we'd even be this far without the yeah. work of the committee. All right. You're all assembled because we knew we'd have news break once we came on the air. And, and one of those stories has broken. We want to tell our viewers about it. It comes from the state of Michigan. Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel has just announced charges for 16 individuals who served as fake electors for Donald Trump in the aftermath of the 2020 election. The charges include conspiracy to commit forgery. Now, that carries a sentence of up to 14 years in prison. Here is the announcement of these charges from Nessel herself. That was a lie. They weren't the duly elected and qualified electors, and each of the defendants knew it. 
They carried out these actions with the hope and belief that the electoral votes of Michigan's 2020 election would be awarded to the candidate of their choosing instead of the candidate that Michigan voters actually chose. Now, later in our broadcast, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson will be our guest to talk about the plot to steal the election in Michigan. Um, but we have Tim Hafey, who um, investigated the fake electors plot in multiple battleground states. And what was always amazing to me, Tim, is that the Georgia investigation has been churning um, under D.A. Fonnie Willis. And Trump is bad at a lot of things, counting the votes he needs doesn't happen to be one of them. And he was never going to stay in power with just Georgia. So I always wondered where these other states were, where he plotted um, the fake electors. It, it appears, you know, here goes Michigan. Yeah, exactly. Look, uh, the attorney general of Michigan uh, over a year ago referred this very matter that on which she has now uh, issued indictments to the Department of Justice. She said, just exactly what you just said, Nicole. Look, the, the Michigan story is part of a broader story that needs to be investigated by federal authorities that can tie together activity in multiple jurisdictions. And then she has said she has not gotten any sense as to where that stands, whether the Michigan story is being investigated upon her referral or not. So she finally went ahead and issued state charges, very similar to what the federal charges might be, it is unlawful to submit something purporting to be official when you know it is not official. And those were not duly certified certificates. They were fake certificates, and that makes it criminal. So I think what you're seeing here in Michigan is, as you said, one other part of a broad national story and a state official, much like Fonnie Willis in Georgia, who says, look, we can't wait and divine whether or not there will or will not be a comprehensive federal case. We have to put move forward with charges in our particular jurisdiction. Now, what will happen to those charges, what the sequence will be if that story is part of a, of a lengthy Jan 6 indictment that includes the, the fake electors narrative in Michigan and elsewhere is to be determined. But I'm not surprised that the attorney general, the attorney general Nessel has moved forward because she said, again, over a year ago, that, uh, that there was evidence of crime in the, the generation of these fake electors in Michigan. Um, and I want to read, just to tie this back to the news that we topped with, I want to read the evidence that the committee developed tying Trump to the fake electors plot. Um, this is uh, from the final report on Giuliani and Trump's role in setting up the fake slates of electors. Quote, on December 13th and 14th, Trump worked with Rudolph Giuliani on the plan's implementation. On the 13th of December, Miller texted some of his colleagues to check in about the fake elector meeting scheduled the following day. He let them know that Giuliani had told him, quote, POTUS was aware that they would be filing litigation in four states just, quote, to keep the effort going, which the select committee believes was to create a pretext to claim that it was still possible for the fake electors to be authorized retroactively. The next day, Miller sent an email asking whether they were going to issue a press release about electors, and he told the told them the mayor is going to discuss with POTUS. Of all of the elements of the coup plot, um, the fake electors' legwork and the meetings and the retail political nature of assembling fake electors is the one that Trump's fingerprints appear to be the most um, completely all over, Tim. Yeah, there's one other piece of evidence, Nicole, beyond what you just read from the report, and that's a phone call where President Trump and John Eastman call Ron and McDaniel and say, we're, we need to generate these electors in these contested seven states, and we need your help 
the RNC's help to do it. They're encouraging her to deploy RNC staff and resources to coordinate the submission of those electors. Again, direct personal involvement in the generation of these false certificates that these electors, you know, were, were, were certified. Or so, so there's a lot of evidence, as we laid out, that put President Trump, uh, in addition to John Eastman and Rudy Giuliani and Ken Cheesebro and other people in the states, to generate those fake electors. It was one part of the multi-part plan to disrupt the joint session, prevent the transfer of power. So I am nothing if not a super fan of the public January 6th hearings. Here's that sound. Let me play this um, for you, Glenn. My view is that the vice president had, didn't have the legal authority to do anything except what he did. They've both told us, Mr. Feldman and Mr. Jacob, that they looked very closely at the Eastman memos, the Eastman theory, and, and thought that it had no basis, that it was not a strategy that the president should pursue it. Sounds like that's consistent with your impression as well. My impression would have been informed certainly by them. Did John Eastman ever admit, or as you know, in front of the president, that his proposal would violate the Electoral Count Act? Uh, I believe he did on the 4th. What did the president say when he called you? Essentially, he turned the call over to Mr. Eastman, who then proceeded to talk about the importance of the RNC helping the campaign gather these contingent electors in case any of the legal challenges um, that were ongoing changed the result of any of the dates. I think more just helping them reach out and assemble them. But the my understanding is the campaign did take the lead and we just were helping them in that in that role. Glenn, we'll we'll deal with the first clip in a second, but but the the second piece, I mean, um Ms. McDaniel talking about Trump getting her on the phone and then turning the call over to Mr. Eastman, talked about the importance of the RNC helping the campaign gather what she called contingent electors. They were actually called fake electors inside the Trump campaign until in an email that the committee also developed as evidence, someone said, maybe we should come up with a different name other than fake smiley face emoji. Um, don't see a lot of those in coup emails, but, but this, this one did. And then they changed the internal sort of word to alternate electors, which obviously has some history with alternate facts going all the way back to Kellyanne Conway. This was a sort of slow motion coup that they, they emailed about, they called about, they put Trump on the phone. They did this with particular brazenness. Glenn, you've frozen on us. Can you hear us? To well, Glenn unfreeze. Uh, oh, can you hear also, us? Sorry. Can you hear me? Go ahead, Glenn. Yeah, we I can got hear you. you now. I'm sorry. Okay. Go um, ahead. The, the, I mean, a lot of this stuff was brought before the committee. I want to say this fast before I freeze again. The the <laughs> the a lot of this stuff was brought before the committee, and and I will share my praise of, of Mr. Heafy and his uh, efforts for, for putting a lot of this into the public domain as a journalist. Um, but um, the question is, what additional connective tissue has Smith uh, been able to develop in terms of connecting this to individual 
interactions with Trump, which will be critical in the prosecution. Um, so there's the stuff that we know that's been out in public already. And, and the Cassidy Hutchinson thing, I think um, I was I was at the department the day she testified. And I can tell you it had a real impact on people. They I don't think they mm-hmm. realized the extent to which this information was available. Um, but th- the question is, what has Smith developed that links Trump uh even more to this particular plot and 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 demonstrates his state of mind that that's going to be a critical question that seems to be what they were asking Jared Kushner when Kushner came into the grand jury uh earlier this month but that's the critical question where was Trump's head at and did he understand uh as you've just articulated that this was uh a, a plot and that these electors were fake you know, Harry Lippmann, um, it's, it's a good point. And we always stop at the gates of, of just how far the committee got, right? So the committee had access to Jared Kushner, but not really beyond the mountain of text messages Mark Meadows turned over. So to read all this communications was, I think Adam Kinzinger on my show called called him the, the star witness who, who didn't show up. Um, they broke through that gate, right? Mark Meadows has been before the grand jury. And it's not just the fake electors, but it, but it, it, it is the question of the violence to the degree that the violence was a tool to stop an official proceeding. Let, let me show you some of the sound that we dug up today of Trump's closest advisors and allies in Congress who clearly, as the insurrection is happening, know that the, the insurrectionists themselves are at the direct and complete command and control of Donald Trump. This starts with Christy, Chris Christie and a few others. The president um, caused this protest to occur. He's the only one who can make it stop. Mr. President, you have got to stop this. You are the only person who can call this off. Call it off. The election is over. Call it off. I was very clear with the president when I called him. This has to stop, and he has to—he's got to go to the American public and tell them to stop this. So, Harry Lemon, as we, because Trump has already been indicted, we know a little bit about what a Trump indictment crafted by Jack Smith and his team looks like in that instance. You could imagine if he has to give examples of Trump's direct role in command and control of the insurrectionists that he might pull from some contemporaneous sound of people like that on that day. Completely. Now, look, the Michigan uh, complaint and, and, and charges there are Michigan specific, but the committee developed a lot about them, including a particularly brazen detail where they don't just say we're the f- fake al- alternate electors. They actually recite that they went to the Senate and went through the whole process, all bald lies. Now, I don't think we can expect the AG of Michigan to charge the you know head of the RNC, much less the Trump folks. But absolutely, this is what Smith has been doing. As we as it sort of filtered out over the last few weeks, not just here, but also Georgia, possibly Arizona. So what is a uh, 16 specific counts in Michigan will elongate into a conspiracy beginning with them on the ground with Trump's intervention at different points, but definitely ending at the ringleaders of the people who were absolutely, uh, you know, calling the shots. And, you know, we spend all these days, Nicole, teasing out the specific details that we're getting. But this is kind of an amazing day because 
all these crimes happened in plain sight. But at the time, they were, were they are they political acts? Are they OK? And it's finally a really resounding response by the system. You saw this. This is this was not politics or Trumpian politics. This was flat out violations of the Michigan and federal criminal code. And they're now all coming together, starting in the states, ending in the Oval Office, which is exactly what happened. Harry Lippman, we know you have a plane to catch, and only because of that, we will let you leave us now. Thank you so much for being <laughs> part of so our much. coverage on this day. Everyone else sticks around. We have much more news to get to over these next two hours, including that first court hearing in the classified documents case in Florida, the United States versus Donald Trump and Walt Nauta, both sides facing Judge Aileen Cannon in a heated back and forth about the date and the schedule of that upcoming trial. We'll fill you in on everything that happened there. And later in the broadcast, one of the most prominent voices who has been calling for accountability for years now, Congressman Adam Schiff joins us on today's fire hose of breaking news. All those stories and more when Deadline White House continues after a quick break. Don't go anywhere. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, Kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today and for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. The question for us is, are we a nation of laws? Um, are we a country where no one is above the law? And what do the facts and the evidence show? And uh, certainly, I've been very clear, I think he's uh, guilty of the most serious dereliction of duty of any president in our nation's history. Uh, you've had a federal judge in California um, say that it's more likely than not that uh, he and John Eastman committed uh, two uh, crimes. So, uh, you know, I think that we're going to continue to follow the facts. I think the Department of Justice will do that. But they have to make decisions about prosecution understanding um, what it means if the facts and the evidence are there and they decide not to prosecute, um, how do we then call ourselves a nation of laws? Throwing down the gauntlet, as Liz Cheney is known to do, let's bring into our breaking news coverage, Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson. She spoke to federal prosecutors in March about the fake elector scheme in her state. Um, your reaction to today's breaking news, you're someone we have turned to um, over the years since the election of 2020 and efforts to steal it from Donald Trump. Uh, news today that Trump has received a target letter from Jack Smith in the January 6th probe. I think it shows that we're moving towards justice being served when the rule of law is broken, particularly in such a pernicious way to try to undermine and block the will of the people in our country. Then, uh, you know, if we allow that to stand, despite evidence that uh, that there was an effort to undermine our democracy, then, you know, as, as uh, Liz Cheney said, we are not a nation of laws. And indeed, we are. And so I'm grateful that there is a wide scope of the investigation, that it's that's leaving no stone unturned, and that it's a fact and evidence-based investigation to simply ensure justice is served so that we do not see a reoccurrence of these attempts in the future. 
Big news happening at the state level as well on the criminal accountability front um, in your state. The attorney general announcing charges um, against 16 individuals who were charged with eight counts each, all felonies, um, if convicted, leading to um, lengthy prison sentences. Uh, I guess two questions on this. We, we know this has been um, on her radar. She, as Tim pointed out, referred it to DOJ and then took the case back and, and focused on it anew. Um, seeing little action and movement from DOJ in a pre-Jack Smith period. Um, Your reaction to these charges today in Michigan? I think, look, this was an actionable plan, uh, not just an idea, to lie to the federal government about who won a presidential election and how Michigan's electoral vote should go. And it wasn't just, again, an idea. This was an actual fraudulent attempt to overturn and undermine the will of the people. These documents were submitted uh, to the federal government. Then they were we were we received them and then turned them over to the attorney general for a full investigation. And so I'm very grateful uh, that the attorney general has followed the facts, followed followed the law, and uh, issued charges against individuals who for whom there was an overwhelming amount of evidence that they knowingly, in my view, allegedly took actions to violate not just any laws but the very laws that govern. The, the access to our elections and who has power in our country. Um, so I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll see uh, justice served here. Uh, we'll see how the facts and the process plays out. But this certainly underscores that there's a role for states to play as well in seeking full accountability for all of those who took actions to undermine the will of the people in 2020. I spoke, you've received um, a lot of recognition. I know that's not why you did it. And I know that nothing really um, ever erases the fear of having armed people outside your house when you're inside with your child. But those things stipulated, some of the people who have been recognized alongside you over the last two and a half years are the Capitol Police officers themselves who paid the price of this insurrection and engaged in what one described as, quote, medieval hand-to-hand combat. Others described it as worse than things they'd seen in combat, if they were combat veterans. I spoke to one of the officers today who said, I don't feel happy. I feel this almost unrelenting sense of rage and grief that it's taken this long and it still feels like a long shot. How do you feel? I feel energized, frankly. I mean, we're in the midst of preparing for the 2024 presidential election cycle. Amidst this breaking news, I've been in meetings all day with individuals, not just in Michigan, but across the country about how we're going to protect the 2024 presidential election cycle from any known or potential tactics that uh, could be employed again or anew to overturn election results simply because individuals don't like them. And so the fact that we are seeing any type of progress at justice for the events that occurred in the past gives me a renewed sense of hope and energy that that we'll see justice. And that is in some ways going to be our best tool to prevent a reoccurrence of these attempts in 2024. So I'm hopeful. Um, and I mean, the charges coming, felony charges coming out of Michigan are serious. Uh, the potential charges coming out of the federal government are serious, and they will do what is needed to be done, in my view, to ensure that we don't see a reoccurrence of at least these tactics in future elections. 
Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson at the center of so many of the stories we talk about. Thank you so much for taking some time to talk to us today. Uh, we're going to sneak in a quick break. We'll get reaction from Tim and Fig and Glenn on the other side. So don't go anywhere. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. So we're in the Oval and there's a discussion going on. And the president says, I think it's, it could have been Pompeo, but he says words to the effect of, yeah, we lost. We need, we need to let that issue go to the next guy, meaning President Biden. I remember maybe a week after the election was called, I popped into the Oval just to, like, give the president the headlines and see how he was doing. And he was looking at the TV and he said, can you believe I lost to this effing guy? Mark raised it with me on the 18th. And so following that conversation where the motorcade ride driving back to the White House, and I said, like, does the president really think that he lost? And he said, you know, a lot of times he'll tell me that he lost, but he wants to keep fighting it. And he thinks that there might be enough to overturn the election. But, you know, he, he pretty much has acknowledged that he that he's lost. We're back with Tim Hafey, Glenn Thrush and Frank Figluzzi. Um, Frank, one thing that almost blinded you by the end of the committee's work with the public hearings and, and the final transcripts was the volume of evidence developed by the people closest to Donald Trump that Donald Trump knew he'd lost the evidence. Now, there's some recent reporting that suggests a radicalization process in the company of the pillow person and the overstock person and Sidney Powell as he got closer to January 6th. But there is a copious amount of testimony and tape depositions. And I, you can only imagine Jack Smith was able to find more evidence that Trump knew he lost. That seems to greatly enhance his criminal exposure and whatever is coming from Jack Smith. No question the jury's going to hear what you just played, and they're going to hear much more likely about this. But I still remind folks, really something important here, a fervent belief in something does not equal a reasonable belief in something, nor does it give you license to commit a crime around your fervent belief. So the jury's going to sit there. They're going to evaluate the evidence. They're going to see what I call charlatan attorneys and advisors telling the president, I think there's fraud. We can get away with this. You should fight. And then they're going to hear about real professional attorneys, including the attorney general at the time of the United States, telling them we've looked at it. We can't find the fraud you're talking about. And then add in some of the statements in the clips you've just played that he actually did understand that he, he lost. And you've got a jury who's going to sit there and go, fervent belief, maybe, maybe not, but not reasonable belief and not licensed to commit fraud, try to steal the election, try to submit alternate slates of electors, try to incite people to breach security at the Capitol. It just won't add up for the jury. Tim, the first time we had the chance to talk to you, I asked if you thought there was enough evidence to charge Trump. 
And you said, yes, but there's more that Jack Smith has access to. And I asked you if you thought it would be exculpatory, and you said no. Um, again, when you look at what sort of the difference between what you saw and what Jack Smith, what we know Jack Smith saw that you didn't, just take me through some of those extra pieces and, and what you would have liked to have deepened in terms of evidence, either with Mark Meadows or Rudy Giuliani or, or, or Mike Pence, people who didn't cooperate with your investigation. Yeah, the the biggest the first example I would I would offer is is uh, Pat Cipollone, right? He, he came he tiptoed up to the line repeatedly in our interview with him. You can see it in the video. He, he he's thinking constantly about is this a privileged communication? He's an institutionalist, and he believes that White House counsel should be able to provide the president with candid advice without that evidence that information subsequently being discoverable by, by Congress or a third party. He, he's doing that because he cares about the rule of law and the institutional role of the White House counsel, but he was tiptoeing, right? Jack Smith may have gotten him to, to run across that line and opened the door mm-hmm. to all of those conversations because the chief judge of the D.C. District Court, affirmed by the Court of Appeals, said, you know, don't have an executive privilege, Mr. Cipollone. You must answer the special counsel's question. So all the times that he stopped short of the line with us, he didn't have that hesitation because a judge had told him he had to answer the question. Mike Pence and Mark Meadows didn't even come in and tiptoe. They they stayed home. They obviously are central to this. Mike Pence is a victim. He was the recipient of all that pressure. We would obviously want to hear all about the pressure that was put upon him. And then look, he's in a very real sense, a victim because the rioters come within 40 feet of the vice president in the Capitol as he is evacuating the Senate chamber on January 6th. And Mark Meadows, he's the gatekeeper. He's the chief of staff who is right in the center of everything. He's at all of these meetings. He's talking to members of Congress, he's talking to state officials. He's on the Raffensperger call. He's there all day on January 6th when the president is saying, you know, uh, as Cassidy told us, he doesn't want to do anything. He's a very central witness right in the room where it happens. So again, if we had enough, just based on what we were able to find with those witnesses tiptoeing up to the line to believe that there had been the violation of federal crimes. Judge Clark in California, even back in the spring of 2022, also found that there was prima facie evidence that Trump and Eastman had conspired to violate criminal statutes. Now, Jack Smith, with his grand jury power that comes with adjudication of privilege assertions, I my expectation is that he has a lot more, that the case has only gotten stronger. There's more inculpatory evidence because of the access he has gotten to that really vital information. So, Glenn, Cassidy Hutchinson was the sort of irrefutable star witness of the January 6th congressional probe. With George Terwilliger as his attorney, there's been this conventional wisdom that Mark Meadows, between what he knew and what he could offer Jack Smith and the caliber of representation he's had throughout would find a way not to get charged either. Is there a scenario where Mark Meadows sort of replaces or supplants Cassidy Hutchinson and becomes the star witness in the criminal case against Trump? Uh, Look, George Terwilliger is uh, a a very well-regarded attorney in Washington. Um, uh, and someone who has a lot of experience in very high-profile, high-stakes prosecutions, um, he is going to do what's best for his client. And I don't think showing Jack Smith the back of his hand is really uh, 
is really a sustainable strategy for for Mark Meadows. So the one thing I the, we don't know what's been exchanged, but the one thing uh, knowing Terwilliger is that uh, he whatever questions he was asked, he was counseled to answer them truthfully and as fulsomely as possible. So you know, deduce from that what you will. The one thing I kind of want to throw into the legal discussion here is just based on what's happening today, we've reported some other outlets are reporting it too. Trump is coordinating with uh, um, McCarthy and some of his allies uh, in the House today. So Trump, again, is viewing this as he has viewed the Marlago documents investigation as a political challenge. So, so he is uh, apparently adopting generally the same approach, which is if I can win on the politics, if we can discredit the people who are who are bringing these cases, then we can win inside the courtroom. Uh, we'll see if that works this time. Yeah. And I mean, maybe even not that far, if he can win in the politics, if it can be reelected, he doesn't have to win in the courtroom where we've not really seen much of a legal defense of any of this. He can just pardon himself if he prevails politically. Um, Tim Hafey, Glenn Thrush and Frank Figluzzi, um, three of the most expert people to have this conversation with. Thank you so much for spending the whole hour with us. We are grateful. We have much more news to get to. One of the January 6th Select Committee members who helped build the case against the ex-president even before DOJ did that. Adam Schiff joins us next. Don't go anywhere. When it comes to teaching kids and teens about money, practice makes perfect. That's where Greenlight comes in. With a debit card and money app of their own, kids learn to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest. Parents send instant money transfers, create custom chores, and automate allowance, while kids track their spending, set savings goals, and practice money skills they can use today. And for life. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com slash podcast. All this bravado and everything else, I've known it for 22 years. And when I was doing these cases in New Jersey and I would put political figures in jail, he would say to me, I could never do that. I could never go to jail. And I'm telling you, no matter what he says, no matter how he's bragging and, and going on and on about him not being afraid, he goes to bed every night thinking about the sound of that jail cell door climbing, closing behind him. <laughs> Clink. Hi again, everybody. It's five o'clock in the East on this blockbuster day of news where that nightmare of Donald Trump's described by his former ally and very close years-long friend, Chris Christie, could be inching closer to a possibility. Special Counsel Jack Smith giving us the biggest signal yet that he is close to seeking an indictment of the already twice-indicted ex-president. Trump broke the news himself this morning that he has been sent and has received a target letter in Smith's probe into the efforts on Trump's part to undo his 2020 defeat. We do not know what exact parts of Smith's expansive investigation the target letter pertains to, but Trump was told he had four days to report to a grand jury. Over in Michigan, that state's attorney general, Dana Nessel, has just announced felony charges against 16 fake electors, people who signed paperwork falsely claiming that Trump had won the 2020 election as part of a scheme to overturn the results there. Today, also marking the first pretrial hearing in Jack Smith's other criminal case against the ex-president, the one examining his role in withholding classified documents 
from the government and keeping them at his personal residence, it has already resulted in indictments. Trump's co-conspirator in that case, Walt Nauta, along with the ex-president's legal team and federal prosecutors, appeared before U.S. District Judge Aileen Cannon in a hearing that wrapped up in just the last hour. That hearing ended without a decision on timing from Cannon. MSNBC's reporting from inside the courtroom reveals that there was a heated discussion on both sides about how quickly the case would be ready to go to trial. Judge Cannon appeared to brush aside the arguments from Trump's lawyers that just because their client is running for president, a jury could not be picked before an election. But she did appear to have a lot of sympathy for their other argument that this case is so complex that they can't follow the prosecution's blueprint and have the trial as soon as January. Cannon said she would file a written order soon. We'll get to that case in just a moment. But for now, we return to today's historic news that the ex-president was informed on Sunday night that he is a target in the second investigation being overseen by special counsel Jack Smith into Trump's conduct, meaning the current Republican frontrunner for president of the United States of America could be nearing a third criminal indictment in less than four months. The many investigative walls closing in on the already twice impeached, twice indicted ex-president is where we begin the hour with Congressman Adam Schiff, Democrat from California. He, of course, served on the January 6th Select Committee. Um, Congressman, first, your reaction to today's news. Well, it uh, shows that Jack Smith is moving, I think, to conclude this investigation, that we are very close to the end. Uh, and it now seems uh, if what the former president is reporting about the letter uh, is correct, that he may very well be indicted yet again. Uh, on the January 6th committee, we found evidence that we referred to the Justice Department that he may have engaged in multiple criminal acts, including conspiracy to defraud the United States, incitement of the attack on the Capitol and other offenses. Uh, and, you know, he should be treated like anyone else uh, that engages in that kind of serious criminal activity. You don't get a pass because you were the president, uh, not if there's going to be one rule of law. So it looks like we are coming to a decision point, And, you know, frankly, it's about time. The work of the Congressional Committee is cited by many people we talk to on and off the air as the variable that but for the committee, and you can't test the alternative, so now I'm asking you to address a hypothetical, but do you think that the Department of Justice would have pursued a criminal indictment against Donald Trump for his role in January 6th, absent the investigation done by Congress? Honestly, I think it is very unclear whether we would have gotten to this point, but for the fact that the January 6th committee put this information out into the public uh, and also submitted it to the Justice Department. Uh, at the time of much of our investigation, they weren't proceeding, it didn't appear, against those that organized uh, the uh, effort to overturn the election. They were merely focused on uh, you know, other important uh, lawbreakers, those who broke into the Capitol that day, those who assaulted police officers. But they did not appear to be looking at the most uh, serious uh, offenders at the top of the scheme. Um, but I think they couldn't look away from the evidence we produced. I also think the investigation took a real turning point when the special counsel was appointed. Uh, he was laser focused. He has moved, I think, with speed and a sense of urgency that appeared to be lacking up until that point. What do you think the stakes are of having the evidence heard by a jury of Donald Trump's peers ahead of the 2024 election? Well, I, I think the stakes are very high. Uh, I don't know that even if he were indicted and even if he were convicted, 
that his base is going to leave him. Uh, you know, as he said quite famously early on, uh, he believes he could shoot someone in the street and they'd still support him. Uh, they have supported him, many Republicans through thick and thin. But at the same time, there's an important, uh, uh, you know, middle in America. It may be a smaller middle than it used to be. But nonetheless, uh, people who don't want a lawbreaker as president and don't want someone who's breaking these laws in particular, uh, which so attack the foundation of our democracy. Uh, this the, the essential component of this scheme was an effort to stop the peaceful transfer of power for the first time in our history. And if you put someone like that back in office again, you can expect it to be the end of the democracy as we know it. Uh, and I just can't believe Americans want to go down that path. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. And I, I feel like the political class has this conversation about Donald Trump as though it's all in stone or concrete and can't change. I mean, his base may never walk away from him, but his base may also shrink. And his base has never evaluated him with his one-time ally, Chris Christie, coming at him with whatever it is Chris Christie is wielding against Donald Trump, talking about his fears of being in prison, driving everything. I mean, do you see the politics as fixed or do you see them as fluid? Uh, I still see it as fluid. And, you know, one big question mark uh, for the Chris Christie's and others, frankly, that were at times critical of Donald Trump in 2016, but then when Trump was running away with it and became the nominee, they got on board with him. Uh, will they do that again? Uh, I hope they don't. Uh, I hope that uh, they show more devotion to the country, the Constitution, than merely going with whoever wins their nomination. But, uh, you know, I think back to Mitch McConnell's passionate speech on the Senate floor mm -hmm. after the second impeachment about how Trump used the biggest megaphone to broadcast the biggest lies and all because he couldn't accept losing an election. It was a matter of weeks later before McConnell, when asked, well, if he's the nominee again, will you support him? Answered by saying, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, mm -hmm. frankly, it's that kind of capitulation that has put us on such a fragile ground as a democracy. I hope that doesn't happen again. Yeah, I mean, in, in some ways, what happened in today's news cycle is exactly what Mitch McConnell said should happen. He votes to acquit Trump. Um, and then he says, but, you know, basically refers him to DOJ for investigation and, and prosecution if the facts are there. Um, we've looked high and low. We haven't seen any response from him today. Um, I, I do want to ask you, though, about the, the turn that the Republican Party has taken and its full embrace toward basically what, what would be a dictatorship in, in Trump's second term, the tools of an autocrat, um, the promise to seek retribution against a deep state. The people that investigated Donald Trump in his first term were lifelong Republicans. Robert Mueller was appointed by a Republican president. He stayed over through a Democratic administration. Um, Jim Comey was appointed to senior positions in the Justice Department by a Republican, as was Rod Rosenstein. I mean, the, the people that he calls deep state are largely Republicans who had jobs that required them to investigate crimes. And every time Iraq was turned over and it was Trump underneath, it looked like crimes had been committed. What are your concerns about the Republican rhetoric beyond Trump, about the FBI and the Department of Justice and the rule of law in America? I'm deeply concerned about the long-lasting damage that Kevin McCarthy and others are doing right this moment. Uh, McCarthy was out there today, again, basically taking aim at the Justice Department and the whole justice system uh, because he's doing Trump's bidding yet again. Uh, and, you know, in the Judiciary Committee where we had uh, Chris Ray come testify, 
they were vilifying him and vilifying the FBI. Uh, that's doing long-term damage. Uh, I was an assistant U.S. attorney many years ago. Uh, when you go into the courtroom, you're often calling FBI agents as witnesses. If the jurors don't believe them anymore because they've been told by the leader of one party that they're all part of some deep state conspiracy, uh, it has real impacts on the ability to, to do what Republicans say they're for, which is bring about law and order. Uh, but uh, sadly, what we have seen uh, is an affirmation of what Robert Carroll, uh, the historian, once said in an interview, that power not corrupting as much as it reveals. And it has revealed mm-hmm. all too many people in GOP leadership as being devoted to their own power uh, over country, constitution, democracy, you name it. Uh, and I frankly would not have expected that to be the case. It's been a quite a uh, difficult uh, realization that the things people profess to care about mattered so little at the end of the day. I wonder what you think we will ever learn about the role of Republican members of Congress. I mean, we, we know that Trump received a target letter because Trump told us he received a target letter, but there's no indication from even the, the recent flurry of activity that Jack Smith has examined some of the folks that, that you and your fellow committee members asked to come in and talk to you about their role or their knowledge of, of Trump's role. And do, do you think that just sort of goes into a black box that we never learn of the role of who Trump described to his own Justice Department leadership as my, our allies who will do the rest after DOJ declares the election corrupt? Uh, I think some of it will certainly be in a black box. If, if there are no charges involving members of Congress, we're not likely to, I think, ever, uh, or at least not for however long the period of time is before uh, certain records are released to the public, which could be decades from now, uh, learn more of the details of the, the involvement of members of Congress. Uh, it is you know, possible during a trial of these matters that more of that information comes out. Um, but uh, I, I would imagine that the department will uh, at least endeavor to adhere to its policy of not discussing things outside the courtroom, outside the pleadings, uh, so we may, may never know fully uh, the involvement of some of the members in all of this. Just remarkable, remarkable commentary in our times. Uh, Congressman Adam Schiff, thank you so much for making some time to talk to us and start us off this hour. We are grateful. Thank you. Um, switching gears for us to the other development in Jack Smith's other investigation into the ex-president, the probe into his mishandling of classified documents. Today's hearing was the first one presided over by Judge Aileen Cannon. She did not make a decision on the timing or scheduling for the trial, but she did say she would make that decision promptly. Let's bring into our coverage former senior national security official at the Department of Justice, Brandon Van Grack, he is well-versed in handling prosecutions involving classified documents and very patient with us and our questions about that. Take us through, just first explain to us what happened today. So, uh, you know, what was supposed to happen today is a focus on scheduling what's going to happen with respect to classified information in the case. There are certain procedures and hearings and filings that occur with respect to classified information based on a law called the the Classified Information Procedures Act. What it appears is the focus instead was really on trying to set a trial date. And at least based on the reporting, it doesn't seem like there was discussions of the SEPA process, the process of classified information, and instead really a back and forth to figure out when, like what, when they're going to put that stake in the ground, uh, to try to have a trial. 
So one of the notes that the New York Times reporter on this um, submitted or, 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 or sort of has, has tweeted about is something I wanted you to expand on for us. This is um, from the New York Times' Alan Fewer. Beneath the scheduling issues was a fascinating philosophical discussion of the nature of Trump as a defendant. It revolved around the question of should Trump be treated like any other defendant or did his role as a candidate need to be taken into account? I guess, one, expand on that for us. And two, where do you come down on that debate? Well, I think it's also related to some of the reporting that talked about the judge in this case really pressing the defendant's counsel on why this case is complex. Under law, under the Speedy Trial Act, uh, trials need to occur within 70 days of charging unless the judge makes a, a, a decision to exclude certain information to certain time. Excuse me. Um, it's justified. And what the judge is saying, explain to me why this is complex. Give me to, to defendants, give me the justification we need to not have this trial within 70 days. And the reason I focus on the law, the Speedy Trial Act, and the judge's comments, which is, you know, with respect to the complexity of the case, the status of the defendant isn't necessarily a basis for complexity. In fact, the judge pushed back, it appears, and was uh, making points of, well, talk about the volume of discovery. Talk about the classified information. And so, uh, ultimately, I think the government's point was that defendants have all manner of uh, challenges with respect to timing. And just because the, the former president is, in fact, running for office isn't of itself a basis to cause significant delay. And, and, and just to one more point on that, I actually think the point works to the opposite effect, which is to the extent that the concern is there's an individual running for political office, then the interest should be resolving that case before the election so that it minimizes the impact. And I think what you're seeing is the Department of Justice move mountains to make that happen. And I think you're seeing defense counsel resist that. One of the things you said yesterday was on this review of the, uh, the, 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 the SIPA process, the, the classified documents themselves, that one of the tells about Judge Aileen Cannon and whether this would be speedy or not would be whether she brought in a magistrate judge to do some of that work. Did we learn when we might find out if she's going to do that or not? Or did she hold all of her cards very close to the vest today? Well, I think it goes to my first point, which is at least based on the reporting, we are not there yet. And I think it's one of the, the I think one of the two takeaways, which is takeaway number one is that this trial is not going to happen in 2023. Uh, we just don't know when in 2024 mm. it, it may happen. But the second is that we, we just didn't get, it appears from the reporting, any clarity on what is going to happen with respect to the SEPA process and classified information. And, and I think it's a really important point here because there are some real urgent issues that the judge needs to decide. The, the government flagged on Monday that the parties haven't agreed to a protective order to receive classified information. That is a conditioned precedent to the government handing over classified information. There are unresolved issues, and at least as of, uh, to our knowledge, uh, not resolved at the hearing, the government didn't even know what, in fact, the defendant's objections were 
to that protective order. That needs to be resolved before the defendants receive the classified information. So I think the, the, the point about whether these hearings go before initially a different judge is also a cause for delay. But I think the point is you're starting to see some of the slow drips for potential delay mm-hmm. here. And it's really incumbent on the judge to really try to hold the party's feet to the fire to make sure that this, this proceeds uh, as quickly as possible. Brandon, before we, we lose you, I want to zoom out a little bit because you, you brought to our attention some of the other cases involving other defendants who aren't running for president, uh, Mr. Tejera, and some of the overlaps and similarities. And it, it feels like the blast radius from what Trump is accused of doing could be larger than than people expected or understood. Can you talk about the stakes or the impact of Trump's case on other classified documents prosecutions? I think I think it's an important point, and in fact, related to, to exactly what's talked about the hearing, which is one of the points the judge made to resist scheduling this trial in December was that it's unusual for cases involving classified information to occur within six months. And and the, the judge is right, but it's not unreasonable, and it's in part because what the government has done here is prepare this case and prepare discovery uh, uh, more uh, quickly than than they do in other cases. And so when you compare it to other cases, like the Teixeira case, the National Guardsman in Massachusetts, if you compare the discovery representations, the government has said it's ready in this case to produce almost all the information. That's not t- the government typically isn't that prepared in the Teixeira case, the case involving up in Massachusetts involving the National Guardsman. The government isn't as prepared. They don't have all that information ready to go and to provide to the defendant. And so I make that point because ultimately, yes, this case is looks like it's the department is seeking to move faster than other uh, national security cases. But that's because it's devoting all the time and resources to do so in ways that typically don't happen, like in the Teixeira case. And because you're someone we turn to to understand what it is like inside the seemingly hermetically sealed Department of Justice, um, we just want your reaction on the news today broken by the ex-president himself that he's received a target letter from Jack Smith for the other criminal investigation into his role on, on January 6th. I think I think it's sobering. Um, yeah. You know, the, the focus tends to be on, well, there's yet another criminal case, a potential criminal indictment, which which appears to be the case. But it's important to focus on what types of criminal violations we're talking about, because not all crimes are created equal. And what the department appears to be saying, um, and it's a Department of Justice, I, I have faith in in terms of its independence, and I think they've demonstrated uh, a justification for that faith, is that um, the former president compromised national security. The only question is the extent of that compromise and sought mm-hmm. to undermine the presidential election. You know, that is um, th- th- that's that's not just a crime. Those are significant crimes. They're troubling. They're concerning. You know, the election is um, the foundation of our democracy. Uh, so I think it is um, it is yet sort of a, another sort of moment to sort of take a step back and, and realize what remarkable times we're in right now. I mean, as you say that, I um, I have chills thinking of John McCain's private moments before conceding to then President-elect Barack Obama. And he looked at Mark Salter, who'd written an exquisitely gracious concession speech with 
with John McCain. Um, and he showed it to me and I read it. I'd been doing the last TV interviews. I think Brian Williams was one of the last people. And I said, oh, it's not over till it's over. But, but he knew, John McCain knew. And he, he said to me, it's beautiful. It's his best about Mark Salter's work. And he said, and it might be the most, something like one of the most important speeches I give. I mean, the peaceful transfer of power gets short shrift in our conversations about the victims of what happened on, on January 6th. And, and your comments sort of remind me of the seriousness with which Liz Cheney went about her work as vice chair on the select committee. I, I wonder if you could speak to whether that's in the back of the minds of the people working on this, the front of the minds, or are they just sort of myopically focused on the crimes and how they would prove them? Well, you know, I think I'd, I'd almost separate the two, which is I think when you when you look at the the, the individuals who are working uh, with the special counsel right now, I think they're individuals who simply put their head down and it seems like in a very uh, compressed amount of time did a remarkable amount of investigative work and believe that they have the evidence to, to for, for both of these criminal charges. I think, you know, the, the piece that, that you're referring to is that, again, this, this isn't just uh, crimes, and, and I know there are state crimes, too. This is the Department of Justice, this independent body within uh, within our government, sort of, uh, as I, I've said before, I think faith uh, in our in the Department of Justice and the FBI uh, are, are critical, foundational to our democracy because they have the ability to take away one's liberty. And the fact that this Department of Justice, you know, careful and thoughtful, this attorney general who has been uh, sensitive and thoughtful and sought to be hypersensitive to political concerns. The, the thought that this Department of Justice is accusing the former president of not just compromising national security, national security uh, in, in, in multiple ways, but now of of undermining that, as you said, the peaceful transfer of power. It's just um, I think it does add, add weight when you sort of put that in context, not just the what, but the who. Wow. Um, you always make us think. Sometimes you make me Google. Um, today, you just made me think. Brandon Van Grack, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. Ahead for us, um, as we keep zooming ahead on this historic day of news, we will be joined by Pennsylvania Governor Josh Shapiro, who, as the state's attorney general, had more time to chat with us and had a front row seat to the efforts by the twice impeached, twice indicted, disgraced ex-president and his allies their attempts to overturn the 2020 election there. And later, our political panel joins us on this monumental day of breaking news as the legal walls are now clearly closing in on Donald Trump. Deadline White House continues after a quick break. Don't go anywhere. Hey, parents. Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. As you all know by now, we are juggling several crucial developments this afternoon. In addition to that target letter we've been discussing, informing Donald Trump that he is now a target of special counsel Jack Smith's investigation into January 6th, 
as well as the pretrial hearing in the classified documents case, we're also covering this important story out of Michigan. That state's Attorney General Dana Nessel announced last hour that her office is charging 16 of those fake fraudulent electors, people who falsely proclaimed in official documents that Trump won the 2020 election there. Joining our conversation is someone we have turned to throughout the ex-president's attempts to overturn his defeat in 2020. He's now the governor of Pennsylvania, Josh Shapiro. Before he was governor, he was that state's attorney general. We had the privilege of talking to you often in that precarious period between Joe Biden's win and the inauguration, which, of course, included January 6th. It's great to see you. I know you've been busy fixing freeways and getting your state um, in good shape. It's very nice to see you. Great to be back with you. Thanks so much, Nicole. I want to I want to hear what you've been up to, but we, we will start with democracy since you've been a, a, a pretty loud and clear voice on all matters of democracy. Your office, when you were attorney general, clarified while well, Pennsylvania's fake electors had a little bit of, of legal cushioning in what they did. They, they added a clause and, and basically had better coup lawyers, as I understand it, and said, if the challenges <laughs> are successful, then we will go. But the Michigan fake electors don't seem to have had that clause in there. What do you make of the news out of Michigan from your one-time counterpart there? Well, let me just say, um, Attorney General Nessel is a serious person. I mean, one of the AGs I respect most in this nation. Um, She obviously uh, took her time. She examined the evidence. Um, She applied the facts and uh, analyzed the law and made a decision, apparently, to issue these charges uh, today. Um, Obviously, there are some factual differences between what allegedly occurred in Michigan and what we know occurred here in Pennsylvania. But the the similar thread throughout is that there was a coordinated effort um, led by the former president that was pervasive in states like Pennsylvania and Michigan and others to try and undermine our democracy, to try and thwart the will of the people, to try and take away their voice in our democracy. And um, while we were able to defeat that threat, I went to court as attorney general more than 40 times and won every single time. But you and I have talked about this, that threat to democracy continues. The fact that um, a now indicted, twice indicted, perhaps maybe three times indicted former president um, is the leading Republican candidate, uh, I think is should be a wake up call for all of us that our collective work to defend our democracy must continue. I want to ask you how that manifests in Pennsylvania. Do you still hear people who don't accept that President Joe Biden is the legitimate president? Um, I do. And and look, there's there's good news and bad news here in the Commonwealth. The the bad news is that um, probably the the leading, most dangerous extremist um, was the Republican nominee for governor. And, you know, he, he brought some people along with him. The good news is uh, we not only defeated him, I earned more votes than anyone in the history of Pennsylvania running for governor, which shows that um, there are common sense Pennsylvanians, the vast majority are, who rejected extremism and defended real freedom here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And we're going to continue to call on those people, Republican and Democrat and independent, to do the hard and necessary work to defend our democracy and continue to beat back these very, very real threats against our democracy. I mean, you gathered to your effort the remaining normal Republicans in the Commonwealth. Do you see a healthier version or do you see a more radicalized 
sort of opposition party in the Commonwealth on the Republican side? Look, I see a group of people um, from both parties who want to see us just get stuff done again, right? And who do want to defend real freedom, who want to be able to make decisions over their own bodies, who want their kids to be able to read the books that they determine a right for them to read, who, who don't want our politicians bullying children just for being who they are. I, I think that's where the majority of Pennsylvanians are. But there still is um, that dangerous, radical, extreme element that um, propped up my now defeated opponent that are continuing to prop up the former president, that people like DeSantis feel like they need to speak to every day. And and I think that's dangerous. And I think what we need to continue to do is focus less on the sort of the party lines and more on folks who are willing to come together and, and defeat that extremism and protect our democracy and search for real freedom in the midst of this this cloud of, of noise and uh, and aggressive efforts to try and undermine our rights here in this Commonwealth and in this country. You gave a speech, I think it was the Saturday night before um, Election Day. President Obama was there. And, you know, you crafted this this frame of what freedom is and isn't. And and, and I, I won't I won't copy it perfectly. So you feel free to jump in. But it seemed to be a frame that not only worked and, and, and certainly was was one of your more, I think, publicized final public speeches before your resounding victory, but seems to be a message that has worked in different versions of it in Michigan, up, up and down the ballot there and in other places. And and I wonder if you think that's a useful frame for the 2024 election. Well, I hope more and more candidates, um, Democrats and, and Republicans alike, uh, adopt the approach that I laid out in my campaign that we were all about defending real freedom here in this Commonwealth. Again, the, the freedom to make decisions over your own body, the freedom to marry who you love, the freedom to raise your children the way you believe they should be raised, the the freedom to be able to not have our children be bullied by politicians, the freedom to be able to walk down the street free of gun violence, the freedom to be able to breathe our air and make decisions that protect our planet. I think that is real freedom. Now, we may have some differences, Nicole, on how we achieve those things, but we should all be rowing in that same direction. That is certainly uh, something I took all across this Commonwealth and not only won in places that Democrats traditionally won, but uh, we won counties that Democrats hadn't won in generations. And I think it's because folks saw that as a common sense approach that brought us together, didn't divide us the way too many folks on the other side do. And I, mm-hmm. I am hopeful that that becomes part of Democrats' message going forward. And for that matter, Republicans, too, who really believe in real freedom and real patriotism and are willing to do the hard work necessary to both defend our freedoms and our democracy. I mean, respectfully, you also ran against one of the biggest lunatics that was on the stage, that was on the menu on on the right. I want to ask you if you have been asked by any of Jack Smith's prosecutors to answer any questions about Trump's efforts to overturn the election in Pennsylvania. I haven't. Um, I haven't. I haven't answered any questions, and I haven't been asked to answer any questions. 
Um, certainly, if there's anything that would be useful, I'd, I'd be more than happy to help defend this nation, help uh, with any investigation. But I've not been asked for for any information. And if we could just ask you to put sort of your AG hat back on for, for a second. What do you think Jack Smith has sort of marshaled in, in terms of the public reporting of the kinds of witnesses he, he's brought in? Mark Meadows, Mike Pence, Jared Kushner, the fake electors. Look, I, with the obvious caveat that I have no insight into what he's doing beyond what's being publicly reported, but it seems that he's doing um, the work that a good prosecutor should do, and that is being very, very methodical, very deliberate, climbing the chain, following the facts and evidence, stitching together different pieces of this that may have occurred in different states or regions, but have a similar thread throughout of a former president who was willing to subvert our democracy to try and overturn the election. He's obviously, at least according to public reporting, interviewed people close to the former president and interviewed others who uh, may have felt pressured by the former president. So it mm -hmm. would seem to me that um, he is going about this the right way. Again, I'm, I'm just commenting to you as a as an observer in the public, not with anyone, mm -hmm. not not with any specific insight into his investigation. You've been so generous with your time. Just just one last question. After being in a state that really was for Trump, the, the front lines of those legal challenges, so many of those cases were brought there absent any evidence at all. Um, what do you think the stakes are for, I mean, we've had electoral accountability, President Joe Biden won decisively. Um, what are the stakes of having legal criminal accountability for Donald Trump? Yeah, I, I think that criminal accountability uh, for Trump and those who participate in this is quite important. Um, you'll recall that one of his lawyers, the now really disgraced former mayor of New York, Rudy Giuliani, came into court in Pennsylvania and lied. And I told you on your program, yeah. we're going to do everything we can to strip him of his law license. We were successful mm -hmm. at that. That is the type of accountability in our legal system that is important. When you come into court and you lie, you should be held accountable. Similarly, if you commit crimes in this country, it's important to note that no one is above the law, not a former president or anyone else. And I think um, it is now the responsibility of these prosecutors, Smith and, and others, to put together the facts and evidence. And if um, they warrant criminal charges, to bring them, regardless of how um, you know famous the, the individual is, that those charges would be levied against. That type of accountability is important for all of us to, again, have faith in the system that when someone breaks the law, no matter how powerful they are, they're going to be held accountable. I do think that's important. There has been electoral accountability, as you correctly noted. Not only did Trump lose, but the guy I beat, who is kind of his right-hand man here in Pennsylvania, <laughs> got crushed. And now it's yeah. also important to make sure that there's legal accountability and that politically these individuals don't um, get, you know, any kind of terra firma beneath them that allows them to, you know, to pursue elected office and successfully pursue elected office and and be in a position of power to do the kind of work they were trying to do before to undermine our democracy. We all have to stay vigilant uh, in our courtrooms and in the court of public opinion and at the election uh, booths. And we all have a responsibility to do that work. Governor Josh Shapiro, it is very nice to get some time on your schedule. I, I, I know that you um, 
bristled at our description of you having more time for us. It was also the pandemic. We were all home and we had the privilege of seeing your family sometimes behind you. But um, we do, as, as we've covered this story, we, we do remember how much we learned from having the chance to interview you during Trump's efforts to overturn his defeat in, in Pennsylvania. So thank you very much for all of our conversations with Thanks, you. Nicole. And thank you for spending time with us today. It's great to see you. Thanks. You too, Nicole. Well, Appreciate you. Thank you. When we come back, we'll get political reaction to everything we've heard today, especially the ex-president's target letter now in his inbox in the January 6th investigation. And in the case of Republicans on Capitol Hill, hypocrisy does not begin to describe what we've seen today. We'll show it to you next. Rounding out our two hours of breaking news coverage, three dear friends of the program who we turn to on slow news days, slow news days, to be honest, and busy, crazy ones like today. Former Congressman from Florida, David Jolly, editor-at-large for The Bulwark, Charlie Sykes, Princeton University professor and distinguished political scholar, Eddie Glaude, all MSNBC contributors. Eddie Glaude, you first. What are your thoughts today? Well, um, people are being held to account. And one of the things, either we're a country of laws or we're not. Uh, and, you know, either we, we can be deliberate, Nicole, but we can't be skittish. We can be deliberate in how mm. we pursue this, but we cannot be afraid. And so today is just an example of the deliberate nature of, of, of the process. So folks are being held to account and they will have their day in court. Charlie Sykes, your thoughts? Well, I mean, obviously, it's a, it is a big deal. We have waited for this for a very, very long time. And uh, it will answer the question about whether our constitutional system is capable of holding someone like Donald Trump accountable. Um, and uh, this this indictment, uh, if, if it comes as we expect it will be, um, will, I think, be an historic moment. It will be a constitutional crisis, but it will also be, in political terms, I think a crisis of patriotism. Because, you know, you've heard the phrase, you know, putting country over party. And I think that's been the ideal for more than two centuries. But what you're seeing on Capitol Hill today is quite literally, you know, one Republican leader after another putting party over country. In fact, not just putting party over country, but putting the their leader, their dear leader over the, the country. They're not even waiting to see what is the evidence, what are the charges, and they are there, but they're they're sounding off. We've seen this pattern before, but I, I think this is going to be a real stress test. And based on the comments we're hearing from Kevin McCarthy and uh, you know people like uh, Congressman uh, Scalise. And the incredible uh, weak uh, interview uh, just given by Ron DeSantis over on, on oh. CNN, um, there are very few prospects that Republicans are going to rise to this moment and finally recognize that it's time to move on. Well, what's so amazing is they attack the deep state without any evidence that one exists. Right. They don't have exhibit A, B, C, or D. They have no examples. I mean, it was Rod Rosenstein, a Republican, Robert Mueller, Jim Comey. I mean, the only people who have really come close to examining and, and, and evaluating and investigating Trump are all Republicans. And so the I, Lisa Monaco isn't a Republican, but I think she had 96 votes in the Senate for her conference. There is no conspiracy on the left. There is no deep state. And I want to show you, David Jolly, Mitch McConnell, you could argue, put this in motion, lit the match for criminal referral of Donald Trump for crimes committed around January 6th. Watch. President Trump is still liable for everything he did while he was in office. As an ordinary citizen, didn't get away with anything yet. Yet. 
We have a criminal justice system in this country. We have civil litigation. And former presidents are not immune from being accountable by either one. I mean, David Jolly, I don't think they're going to play that today on Fox, but the remedy for quitting him in his second trial, it wasn't a vote to acquit on McConnell's part because he was innocent. It was a procedural thing. He didn't think that you could impeach someone basically on their way out the door. Um, the, the Overton window always shifts. There was never any sense on or around January 6th that Trump was innocent of inciting the insurrection. So everything they say today is a load of you know what. Yeah, that's right, Nicole. And I hope uh, Mitch McConnell stays true to his word, which is that ultimately, if the Senate leader from Kentucky decided not to use his political authority, that he trusts the criminal justice system. And I think what we are seeing is ultimately the American people are going to be faced with a question, which is, I believe today that we will see Donald Trump on trial sometime between him getting the nomination for the Republican, uh, the Republican nomination for presidency and the general election. And then do we trust the criminal justice system to ride its course? I don't know. This is a question that's going to be put in front of the American people in a very, very hard way. And I think we have to prep for that moment. Uh, Donald Trump is appearing to be indicted. He already has two indictments. He likely, likely will have two to three more. And he will try to push as a defendant all of those indictments and the trials past his securing the Republican nomination. But the ultimate question before the American people will be, do we wish to elect Donald Trump to absolve his criminal culpability? Or do we trust Joe Biden to continue to write the ship of state? and let the criminal justice system determine ultimately Donald Trump's fate, if you will, as Mitch McConnell once said in the U.S. Senate. And, you know, Charlie, the message from Trump to his base isn't even coded anymore. It's basically, you shield me, you vote for me, and I'll be protected. Exactly. No, there, there, are, there are several different defenses. One is the OJ defense, which is that you, if you have no defense, you attack the prosecution. Uh, but you can see from the <laughs> motions that he's uh, throwing up against the wall that he's not really mounting a, a, a legal defense. This is all political. Uh, he knows that his mm-hmm. best chance to stay uh, out of an orange jumpsuit and stay out of prison is to win an election, that this is for him a political contest. Um, the great irony, of course, is the the only job um, that, that he would ever be considered for, given his record, his conduct and all these indictments, is president of the United States. But that is his only way out at this point. And the Republican Party is uh, apparently not going to draw the line here. And I, and I do think it's worth uh, mentioning, and you made this point, Nicole, that, which I think is very, very important, that if not for the January 6th committee, we would not be experiencing what we are today. If it was not for that investigation, I'm not sure the Justice Department would have moved on all of this. And I think that that would have been a real, uh, I think it would have been a constitutional calamity uh, to have allowed this to pass, uh, you know, without, without the kind of legal action that I think is now imminent. So, Eddie, we can't end without sort of tipping the hat to um, Betty Thompson and Liz Cheney and the work of the January 6th Select Committee. Absolutely. You know, just to think about this man from Mississippi, of all places, chairing that committee. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I'm thinking about this. There's always been a question, Nicole, about democracies. Would they work? Would it it work to to give everyday ordinary people the capacity to govern themselves? Would their passions Mm -hmm. overrun reason? Democracies are the threat of the mob, of mob rule. 
And here we are in this moment. Charlie hit it on the head. This question of patriotism, at the heart of it, is will our political passions overrun, right, our understanding of justice? Will they overrun our very commitment to the principles of democracy? We're right at that inflection point. And let's see what history says about what we do now. We could not have ended this broadcast on this day without hearing from you guys. David Jolly, Charlie Sykes, and Eddie Glad. So thank you so much for making some time for us today. We just sneak in another quick break. We'll be right back. As the pileup of legal exposure facing the twice-indicted, twice-impeached ex-president gets higher and higher today, there's more. There's what's happening in Fulton County, Georgia. Georgia's Supreme Court denied Trump's bid to halt Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis's probe into whether he and his allies tried to overturn that state's 2020 presidential election results. In a unanimous ruling, the nine judges, eight of them appointed by Republican governors of Georgia, said that what Trump's legal team was seeking, quote, is not the sort of relief that this court affords, at least absent extraordinary circumstances that petitioner has not shown are present here. What that means is that we could soon see charges in that case against Trump in Fulton County, Georgia, and they could come any day now. We will be watching together. Another break for us. We'll be right back. Thank you so much for letting us into your homes during these truly extraordinary times. We're so grateful. Hey, parents, Greenlight is here to take one big thing off your to-do list, teaching your kids about money. With a Greenlight debit card and money app of their own, kids and teens learn to earn, save, and invest. You can send money instantly, set flexible controls, and get real-time notifications of your kids' money activity. Set up chores and put allowance on autopilot to reward them for their hard work. Then learn about the world of money together. Get one month free when you sign up at greenlight.com podcast. 